Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the latest attempts to break the deadlock in the Brexit negotiations, another week of worrying data on the world economy, and what to watch in the US impeachment saga with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Word on the Street, your weekly opportunity to unpick the investment themes behind the last week's news. Today, I'm joined by Will Hobbs. Now, Will, for the last couple of years, in fact, I've heard you talk about little other than Brexit, the next recession, and the various ramifications of the Trump presidency. Maybe a spot of cricket here or there, but largely those three topics. Now, it amazes me how your seemingly perennial obsessions seem to be reaching a crescendo all at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Toby? That's a very smart, strong T-shirt you're wearing today, by the way. Well, I wanted to make a... It it depicts a picture of Marvin the Paranoid Android from Douglas Adams' uh, infamous Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy (laughs) with a strap line saying there's no hope. Um, Coincident with with this week's news. Look, (laughs) let's start close to home. We haven't got our genuine Brexit expert here. I like Brexpert. Brexpert. (laughs) Sophie's our Brexpert, our Brexit expert. I think she's still recovering from the political bacchanal that we all know as the Conservative Party conference. Poor thing. So you will will have to do. What's the latest on Brexit? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there is um, uh, evidence of a slightly more constructive tone in negotiations. Um, I think we pointed out before that um, we shouldn't underestimate how little either side really want um, uh, or don't want uh, the unknown of an exit without a deal um, in spite of the kind of, you know, the understandable bravado that always uh, accompanies kind of negotiations. I guess it's interesting that in amongst all of uh, uh, the incredible scenes, constitutional outrage and so on of the last month or so, the Prime Minister's hands seem to have been actually freed a tiny bit, particularly with regards to um, to, to Northern Ireland. I mean, we'll see where it gets to. Um but the chances of a deal are rising a little bit. Um, the two sides at least have something, uh, you know, the basis now have the basis of something to negotiate on, negotiate on apparently, uh, even if time is very, uh, very, um, very tight. There are even um, very premature uh, whispers of a kind of meaningful vote for, or I guess it would be a meaningful vote one, um, on uh, Saturday the 19th. Um, of October, so keep your uh, keep your eyes peeled. I doubt we're done with the twists and turns here, though. To be honest, no, it's um, it's it's astonishing, but it does it does bring into into mind that, that famous expression that people campaign on poetry and then govern on prose. Yeah. We're we're seeing a slightly more moderate tone from from the prime minister. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, does that mean that you and the team are getting any closer to taking a position, or is it all still a bit too foggy for your liking? Yeah, investment. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. We are a little bit, or we continue to be a bit tempted by sterling from a kind of longer term perspective. What's uh, what's driving that? Why this sort of slight change in position? Well, I mean, it, it's 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 for some time. Sterling's valuation does seem to suggest a bit too much gloom. There's a lot going on here, though, uh, Toby. And I, I think you know it's important to realise with TAA, with our tactical allocation, you know, the the sort of those tw- are the changes that you make to the overall the long the, the long term asset. Yeah. You know, the tweaks that we make to try and sort of take advantage of uh, you know uh, inefficiencies here and there. It's not about taking positions on everything. Uh, it's really trying to discipline yourself to 
take positions where you feel that the odds are significantly tilted in your favor. Um, and, and it's not always going to win, of course, you know, but it's just if you play with that discipline uh, or you invest with that discipline, you're likely to win more often than not. Now, Sterling is presenting an opportunity, but the odds are quite difficult to discern because there's so much going on. It's such a noisy story, isn't so it? So would it be fair, that's an interesting observation, would it be fair to say then that from a tactical positioning perspective, actually not changing the tactical position is the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, that's 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 the right way to think. I mean, I think you, you look around the world and there's all sorts of opportunities that are cropping up and you're just assessing them to try and see whether whether you could, whether there's something, whether there's a, there's a where you could stack the probabilities in your favour a little bit. Um, it's still a little bit too marginal for us, but we are looking very closely, continue to look very closely at, uh, at that for a potential. Trade. So that's Brexit and Europe. Does the same thing apply to the impeachment saga in the US? Now, I don't know whether you've seen, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, um, the American late night shows, easy to catch up with them on YouTube, and they have had an absolute fiesta mm-hmm. with some of the things coming out of the White House, some of the quotes that, that that have been coming out. Now, last week, you pointed out the very different market conditions through the Nixon and Clinton impeachment processes as some sort of evidence that the prevailing macroeconomic backdrop is still more important than actually what's going on in the big house at the top of Pennsylvania Avenue. Is that the same with President Trump or, to use the expression, this time it's different? Well, I, it's, I mean, the real problem here, Toby, as you rightly point out, is that it's just such a rare occurrence. Um, you know, you've got, you know, Andrew Johnson, I think his impeachment saga is at the end of the 1860s. You know, so you've got very different capital market conditions and economy. You'll start talking about tulips in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I know, we'll get there, won't we? And, and, and I think the problem you have is you're looking, you know, if you're looking at the sort of the Nixon and um, uh, Clinton uh, impeachment sagas, you're looking at two very different presidencies, almost unrecognizably different macroeconomic backdrops. Literally, all they have in common is the word, uh, you know, impeachment. impeachment. Yes. Right. So, 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 but the nice thing is when, so when, when we, when our, our listeners are, are, are hearing any comparisons made in the news to previous impeachments, from an investment perspective, it's pretty much fair to say that there are almost no lessons. To be uh, well, I mean, what you can say is that public opinion um, is important in these um, sagas. It, it's a process which is deliberately designed by the founding fathers to kind of rise above um, partisan um, politics. There's actually a very nice, uh, for history buffs here, there's a very nice um, paragraph um, from Alexander Hamilton under the pseudonym of Publius uh, about the um, uh, about the impeachment um, story and what it means and how you go about it and why it's designed as such. Uh, but that's for the sort of the geeks among us, I guess. But but in this case, the, the Constitution provides that the trial itself, um, if it gets that far, is presided over by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So that shows, you know, really you're trying to rise above uh, partisan politics. However, these are elected politicians. So public support for the process and the outcome is key. Well, so let me just stop you there, because one of the things that I've been reflecting on is the fact that when it comes to President Trump, there's almost a sort of a political veblin effect. Now, for, 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 for people who don't know the term, that's the economic term where basically the price and the quantity move in sync with one another. It's, it's a luxury goods effect. So like Rolex watches or Louis Vuitton bags, the higher the price, the more desirable they become and the more people will pay. And it feels to me that there's a sort of political veblin effect with 
President Trump, that the more outrageous things become, the more ludicrous some of the rhetoric becomes and the speculation around the fringes, actually the stronger his popularity becomes amongst quite a large swathe of the population. In fact, it's that polarising effect that seems to make him different than predecessors who would gravitate towards the middle. What do you think? Public opinion can swing um, quite quickly. I mean, you would say that President Trump's approval ratings uh, go between a pretty narrow band, um, and I think that's a point you can make. But I think, uh, or have so far gone in a pretty narrow band. Um, the counterpoint would be that, you know, President Nixon uh, won a landslide election in 1972 uh, with, I think, 200 more electoral votes uh, than uh, President Trump managed back in 2016. His job approval ratings were sky high. Now, two years later, his approval rating was 24% on the day of his resignation. Um which um, which would have, which came surely before he was or would have been impeached. And I guess this illustrates two things to me anyway. One, um, you know, kind of incoming information um, can really change things uh, for the public. So in Nixon uh, case, it was the release of that um, infamous tape recording with, um, you know, Nixon speaking to Haldeman uh, about, um, you know, asking, telling him, you know, telling the CIA to tell the FBI to back off. But two, the second point is that president, presidential approval ratings never go to zero. Uh, you know, there are always enough people who are committed to their, uh, too vested in their votes to change their opinion. So, uh, you know, this, this, this can change. I mean, it, we need to follow this from a market's perspective. It, it may have a bearing on investments. Um, we also want to sort of, you know, keep, keep some humility in mind. We don't, we don't know how this is going to play out. Um, and, but public opinion is one thing that we can watch. And that's something that we can learn from previous lessons. Well, another thing that we can watch is just the, the, the swathe of data points that we have. And one, one thing that I've noticed is, is that the, the economic pulse seems to be a lot weaker now. It hasn't disappeared, but that, that pulse is weaker. And also, as I look at my data dashboard, the one red light that seems to be winking at me is your desert island indicator. So are we closer to recession now? Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, September looks to have seen another lurch lower in kind of global economic um, activity or at least the, the way that it, you know the forecast of that from the survey data um, and we're a little bit closer to stall speed around many points of the med I, I, I would make two points roughly um, the first one is that uh, you know, in spite of the swoon in some parts of the global economy, particularly those kind of more trade sensitive parts, we still think a recession can be avoided and uh, I think this is the most important part of that first point is we'd still argue that the need for the kind of economic punishment that was dished out by the last downturn remains substantially absent. So the excesses and imbalances um, haven't built up to nearly the same degree. The second point is it's not all doom and gloom still. So, so you know, the plunge in interest rates around the world, um, alongside some other activity from various uh, various uh, actors, economic actors, is having uh, the desired effect in some corners. So, um, so for instance, housing activity in the US has actually rebounded quite sharply. Um, you know, the Chinese economy seems to be leveling out both on kind of survey data and a bit of anecdotal data as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're positioned quite quite cautiously at the moment in our ta in that tactical portfolio we talked about earlier. But we'd lean against the kind of doomsday priced in by some parts of the world's uh, you know government bond markets. So just one final thing then before we wrap up, I think it was Ben Franklin that famously said, "I enjoy paying taxes with them. I purchase civilization." Now I'm not sure how uh, how I feel about that, but the, the the tax. A lot of clients are asking about the effect of 
changing tax rates, potential changes in tax rates on growth. This is particularly important in the UK, obviously, with very different tax postures being proposed by the Conservatives and Labour. But I guess it's also important in the US with the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, two of the front runners in the race to the Democratic uh, challenge for the presidency next year. They're also offering a very different view of where marginal tax rates should uh, should should sit. What's our view? Yeah, Toby, I mean, it's a fascinating um, debate. And obviously, there are huge kind of distributional implications um, of the type of tax regime um, the government opts for. However, there is no robust evidence um, that different tax regimes uh, affect an economy's overall, you know, its trend growth rate. Um, so we can actually, we can give a very blunt example of this. And I think it's uh, it, it should be taken as such. But if you look at the US, it's always quite a good case study, the US, you get lots of good data. Uh, I know that's a tragic thing to say, but anyway. Um, so from 18... 18- it's Friday, I'll let you have it. And I'm the one in the T-shirt. So. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. At least we, some of us have turned up in a proper shirt. Uh, from 1870 to 1912, so the US had um, no income tax and tax revenues uh, as a percentage of GDP are just 3%. Um, now, obviously, from 1913 to 1946, you enter a period of kind of, you know, two world wars and a depression, you know, lots of unsettling stuff. By 1947, however, the economy had entered a new period of permanently higher um, taxes and government spending um, from, uh, uh, so so from 1947 to 2000, the highest marginal income tax rate averaged 66% and federal revenues um, averaged um, about 18% of GDP. Now, if you think about it, the vast differences between uh, before 1913 and after World War II can therefore provide us with some kind of first order sense of the importance of tax policy on growth. However, the growth rate of real GDP per capita, uh, per person, um, was identical um, in the 1870 to 1912 period and the 1947 to 1999 period, literally just above 2%. So total productivity remains broadly the same. It's just the people doing the spending that change. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it, it, exactly. And you sort of... Yes, that's broadly it. Now, there's more evidence. That's very rough evidence, but you can you can dig up troves of this stuff. Now, obviously, for a lot of um, you know people listening to this call, it's more about how it affects me. You know, do I want to pay more tax and so on and so on? But I think we can really only look at the sort of the top level for the purposes. So, of from a, from a, would it be fair to say then, from an investor's perspective, there is more likely to be a a sectoral shift in the way that money is spent rather than a total aggregate change in the amount of money in the economy and I don't mean in an M2 sense I just so but we fundamentally think that the global economy is still expanding that's always your base case that the factors of production uh and labor and you know and and efficiency and how we throw those things together yeah yeah yeah, that those are the factors to 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 really consider so diversification more important than ever yes yeah and i think that's that's it's 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 a it's a difficult time isn't it there's i think the the the, my old boss who was used to talk about seeing this hearing the signal through the noise um and i think at the moment there's an awful lot of noise uh the signal is quite hard to detect but we would still say that you know the the that, you know, the prospects for productivity, human ingenuity are the same as they ever were. So therefore, getting invested and diversified is just as attractive as it ever was. So with that, you will cease your noise. <laughs> the folks who are listening will get back to their signal <laughs> and we will meet you again for another edition of Word on the Street. Will, thanks. Fascinating Pleasure, conversation as ever. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.